some of my favorite to lift our hearts in worship to God. On a less serious note, however, uh, I would just mention that I'm supposed to say sit down when we pray. And there's some invisible force between here and that front row that makes me forget to say that. So uh, whenever we, uh, after we read scripture and before we pray, you can uh, go ahead and sit down. Let's uh, do that now before we begin. I'll give you a few moments to pray in silence and then, um, then I'll begin us and open us in a word of prayer. So take a few moments to prepare your heart. Father, we do pray and ask you as your people now that you would come and visit us in a unique way as we hear the preaching of your word. As we have gathered together to hear you speak to us, would you by your spirit impress it upon our heart? Would you illume your word to our hearts and give us spiritual understanding? Would you increase our faith or even for some create faith this morning by your spirit? And lift our hearts up into worship. And help us to gain spiritual wisdom and encouragement to live for you in this world. Awaiting your return. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles into Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to try to fix that. Okay. Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30. Actually, that was what I think caused it. Yeah. So Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. 14 through 30. A familiar parable to us, the parable of the talents. Many have heard of that, the parable of the talents, and maybe you're familiar with it. It is the last parable that Jesus is giving here in this section concerning His return, particularly concerning the unexpectedness of His return. Now, in the previous parables, Jesus was addressing specifically the unexpectedness of his return. And he used the example of the flood who came in the days of Noah. And that was parallel to the times before Christ returns from heaven and how it will catch many people unawares, indeed unprepared. And that then was the focus of his first few parables. However, in this parable, we take a different turn. He's addressing more specifically what that preparedness looks like. In other words, what the life looks like that is ready for the Lord's return. Or more generally, to say what the life who is prepared then to stand before the Lord. In other words, what should we be doing in his absence? And the main point is this. That we are to make the most of the time for God's glory, for we will give an account to our lives. That's essentially the theme. To make the most of the time or the opportunities that God gives us in this life and use it for His glory, for we will give an account for our lives. Indeed, as will be illustrated by Jesus, one of the greatest tragedies in our lives is that of missed opportunities. And particularly when those missed opportunities are a result of our own foolish decisions and wrong hearts. Now there is one sense where missed opportunities are grievous in terms of things of this world and things of this life, and yet all of those things are ultimately passing. They're not of eternal consequence. But to have that missed opportunity, to miss the opportunity related to eternal life is of the utmost importance. And that is what Jesus is addressing this morning. 
those who have made some profession of attachment to Christ and yet at the end missed out on all of the blessings of salvation because of a wrong heart. Jesus said in John 12, don't turn there, in verse 35, He says, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. In other words, lay a hold of the opportunity that God gives to you to know Him and to serve Him. One of the greatest privileges and purposes in our life is to know and serve Christ. And so He calls us to consider that this morning. Read with me, if you will, the parable beginning in verse 14 of Matthew 25. We'll read down to verse 30 and then look at it more closely. Verse 14 of Matthew 25. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore... Take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go back up, if you will, to verse 14 of Matthew 25. And let's notice first, opportunity and expectation of service. An opportunity and expectation of service. And let's consider then firstly just the general uh, elements of the parable. He says, for just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. The opening four there, of course, links to the parable that he just gave, most likely to the whole parable. He's continuing on that teaching. It is then a parable, as he mentions in verse 1 of chapter 25, about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. That is the comparison that he's making. 
And as mentioned earlier, Jesus, however, is moving past instructions up to this point about preparedness in light of his unexpected return. And he's focusing specifically on what that preparedness looks like. What does the life look like that's ready for his return? He uses familiar elements in the parable. He speaks of a king, which refers to Christ. He speaks of slaves, which is resembling uh, our own relationship to God, to Christ. We are slaves. He is the master. These are common elements in Jesus' parables uh, throughout. And the slaves here are representative, particularly of, like the virgins in the previous parable, of those who make a profession of faith, of those who are in some way attached to the king, to Christ. So this would be those then who have some profession of faith in Christ and have some attachment to Christianity. And as noted earlier, we would just make one introductory point here, that Jesus is primarily addressing that generation that will be on the earth at the time of Christ's return. That specific generation that was set up when he talks about the generation like Noah at the time of the flood. So he's referring particularly to that generation who will be alive at the return of Christ. However... The warning stands to all generations because the essential point is this. You must be prepared to stand before the Lord. That's the essential point. Whether it is meeting the Lord and being in His presence at His return, whether it is being taken by the Lord in death or some other means, the point is that each must be prepared to stand before the Lord. And so the question that Jesus would have us answer throughout this and that is laid before these disciples And to you and to me is, does your profession match your life? Does your profession of faith in Christ match your life? Is it borne out in reality in your life? Okay, let's look a little bit further. And let's notice first then, a specially tailored opportunity. A specially tailored opportunity. And that's in verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to one... ...each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Similar to those, the slaves back in chapter 24, whom he put in charge of his house... ...these slaves, now the number is three, have been entrusted with the possessions of the master or the king. And he is indeed a great master. He is one with many possessions. The talent here, interestingly enough is from this parable where we get our English word for talent. And we usually, uh, usually use it meaning like a natural ability. Like they're really talented at playing the piano. They're really talented at sports or so on and so forth. But that really then is an inappropriate use of it. That's not exactly what he means here as we're familiar with. But I would make mention that a talent was originally a measure of weight. So there was a a talent of gold, a talent of silver or so on and so forth. The talent equaled roughly 57 to 80 pounds. And now this evolved into a unit of coinage. And this unit of coinage had a pretty standard value at this time of about 6,000 denarii. And as you remember, one denarius was equal to a day's labor in that time. So we're looking at about 6,000 days labor, which would equal about 17 years wage for the average day labor of that time. So these talents are significant amounts of money. And obviously, this master has a significant amount of possessions. And he entrusts some of it here to these slaves. But the point here, however, is not the amount of money. That's not the significant point. 
The significant point is what he says there near the end of verse 15. Is that he gave a talent according to each one's ability. According to each one's ability. That is to say, his master knew his slaves well. He knew their particular abilities, their particular set of skills. He knew what they would be able to do, what he should rightly expect from them. And he gave to them accordingly. That's the important thing to notice. And so really then here, the talent takes on this idea, this unit of uh, what is technically a unit of uh, money, takes on this idea, privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven. Privileges and opportunities of the kingdom of heaven. He gave them according to their abilities. He gave them opportunities according to their abilities to make a gain for their master. So let's notice secondly then an expectation of service. An expectation of service. He expected them to take then what he had given and use it for his honor. Immediately, we see that in verse 16, the one who had received the five went out and traded with them, gained five more. Verse 17, the one with two did the same. But in 18, we come to a very different situation, and he went and hid. The point is this, that the first two had an opportunity to serve their master, and so they went out and they served their master, and they made a profit for him. They were productive. The point to notice here is that the third slave was not productive. Was not productive. And instead of seeking to make a profit for his master that would benefit him, he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. So there's a striking contrast then between the attitude and the actions of these two slaves, both in what they did and toward their master. And it seems clear here that we should understand that all of the slaves equally understood what the master expected from them. In other words, that he had given them the money with the expectation that they would take this money and go and make a profit. So that was understood by all. And yet, only two were responsive to that expectation and one was not. Two were concerned about their master's welfare. One was concerned only about his own and made no effort. So what are we to understand then from this parable, at least up to here? Well, let me note at least three things. And now each one of these, of course, is a sermon in itself. I'm going to do little more than mention them so we can get through to the end. But let me at least just highlight three points then of this opening part of the parable. And the first is this. God owns all things and is sovereign over every ability and opportunity that He gives. And every ability that He gives is an expression of His grace. He is sovereign over every ability and opportunity that He gives. Notice the repeated emphasis in verses 14 and 18. His own slaves, His possession, His master's money... And this is important for us to realize because we have a natural fallen tendency to think that the things that we have in life, the opportunities that we have in life, are somehow from our own natural resources or to use for our our own advantage. But that is wrong. The fact is that Jesus establishes at the outset that God is the owner of all things. He's the owner of every life. He's the owner of your life. He is the owner of every opportunity that He brings, every opportunity in your life. He is the owner of every ability that He gives, every ability that you have in your life. God owns it all. It belongs to Him. It belongs to Him. And it belongs to Him for you to use for His own glory. 
That is the point. Paul said to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer to that is nothing. Nothing. Everything that you have has been received by God and is to be used for him. And frankly, while there is application here, the application is specifically to professing believers, it has application to unbelievers. Even to unbelievers, God has given them what he's given them for his glory. They will be held accountable for not using it for his glory. We see that throughout scripture. Nebuchadnezzar and others, you did not give glory to God. It was God who gave it to you. You should have used it for him. You used it for yourself glory. But that is especially true of believers. Especially true of believers. He says to the Corinthians again in 1 Corinthians 6 20, just, just listen. He says, You have been bought with a price. Your life is not your own, it belongs to Christ. If you know Christ, your life belongs to Him, and everything that He has given to you is expected to give a return to Him for His glory. And Jesus establishes that here at the beginning of this parable. And everything that is given to you is given as an expression of grace. The master in this parable was under no obligation to give to these slaves. There was nothing forcing his hand to give to these slaves. He gave to them freely out of his own generosity, out of his own graciousness. And so it is with God. He's under no obligation to give you anything. He does it as an expression of his kindness. He grants us the privilege of participating in his work. So notice first then that God owns all things and he's sovereign over every ability. Notice secondly then that God measures out what he gives with perfect knowledge and wisdom. He measures out what he gives with perfect knowledge and wisdom. Notice again in verse 14 the important point there that the master gave according to their ability. According to their ability, God has given you exactly what is necessary for you to fulfill his purpose for your life. He's given you exactly what is necessary for you to fulfill his purpose for your life. And his decision in what he gave you is perfectly wise. It is perfectly good. It is given with an infinite knowledge of you and his purpose and his plan. Everything is given by God perfectly to each one of his servants. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has designed it that way on purpose. There is a specific reason, though we may not see it, for what he has given to you and what he has withheld from you and what he has not given to you. Each of these is according to God's perfect wisdom. Now I say that for this reason. And that's important for us to grasp for this reason... Because how easy it is to grumble and complain and to live with a certain kind of anxiety over what we don't have or what God has not given. He addresses this in 1 Corinthians 12. Again, don't turn there. You can if you want, but you're familiar with this passage. It says that God, by by the Spirit, God the Spirit has distributed gifts among the church as He has desired to do that according to His wisdom. He says there are many members in verse 20 of one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable... On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. And so God has composed the body with wisdom, and he has given his gifts 
as he has seen fit. And they, it is wise and it is good. And it is one thing to joke about what we don't have. I wish I could read like Al Mohler or preach like MacArthur or Piper or something else. And it's another thing to have a real discouragement in life because you are depressed about what God has not given you and about your circumstances. That is quite another thing and that is what he addresses here. It can then be an expression of pride that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So we have a foot who grumbles and complains and is sad it's because I'm not an eye. Or we have an eye who grumbles and complains because I'm not the prettiest eye. I'm not the clearest eye. I'm not the most beautiful eye. That is sin. God has given to each of us perfectly as he has designed. And we are to accept it as his good gift and not to complain. Thirdly then, notice this, that God expects us to act on what he gives. He expects us to act on what he gives. Whatever God has given you by way of gift, by way of opportunity, by way of ability to serve him, he expects it to be used to that end. In other words, to serve him for his glory. All things are from him, through him, and to him, to him be the glory. He does not expect you to sit on the sideline. And believers, again, are doubly accountable in this because we have been given not only salvation, we have been given the Spirit who enables us to serve Christ. So if you are a believer in Christ, you have been uniquely gifted by God to serve Him in this world and to serve whatever local body He has put you in, He has placed you in. He has given it for a specific purpose. If you are not serving in the church and in the place where God has put you, you are sinning. You are being disobedient to the Lord. God has given us something to use for His honor and glory. And when we do not do that, when we sit on the sidelines, when we check out and we become observers in His church, we are doing exactly what He's going to condemn in this parable. We are failing to honor Him with the gift that He has given us. Now I can say by one encouragement and exhortation this. We all know about the 80-20 rule, right? It's it's pretty standard across the board. Whether it's a good church theologically or bad church or big or small or whatever. It's usually 80% of the people who do nothing who sit on the sidelines. And 20% of the people who actually support the ministry and do the work of the ministry. Now Trish, actually totally unrelated to this. Uh, on her own, just kind of saw, wanted to, to see what our percentage was here. And it was actually a little closer to 60-40. It was a little closer to 60-40. So we're, at this point, doing better than the average. But what should it be? should be 100-100, shouldn't it? It should be 100-100. So if anybody is not serving Christ with what God has given them in this body, then the exhortation is, you need to do so. You need to do so. Let's move on. Not only does he expect us then to serve him, not only does he expect us to honor him and glorify him where he has placed us, he will hold us accountable to do so. And that's the second point. The accountability and recompense for service. The accountability and recompense for service. He will hold each of us accountable for how we use the opportunities that he gives us. And then we are reminded then, as as just a preface to this, that we are then to live our lives As you see it throughout Scripture and constantly in what Jesus is telling us in these parables, you are to live your life, I am to live my life in view of this day of standing before Him. 
We are to anticipate that. That should be a regular thought of our life that as we live, we take every moment, we take every thought, we take every opportunity and we forward it to that day of standing before him in the light of his presence and we evaluate it by that light, by that truth and it should govern then what we do. And so it is here. Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And Paul tells us that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, let's look at these slaves here then. Beginning in verse 19, it says, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and he settled accounts with them. Now note that little phrase there, after a long time. It may be picking up on the unexpectedness of his return from back in, for example, 2447 and others. Or it's likely, I think, to emphasize the ample time that was given to the slaves to do something that was profitable for their master. To do something that was profitable for their master. In other words, they had ample opportunity. They had ample reason to give, bring return on the Lord's investment ...that he gave to them. So in any case, the master returns here... ...and he returns to settle accounts. He returns to settle accounts. And notice first then, he rewards for faithful service. He rewards for faithful service. Look at verses 20 through 23. Now notice, both the first and second slaves then... ...came up to their master to present what they did. Verse 20, the one who had received the five talents... ...came up and brought five more talents. And the one who earned the two talents... Uh, did the same. They came up, they came forward, and really the language here hits at an, hints at an eagerness. It's, it's almost like an excitedness that they have to go up to their Lord and present to Him and say, look what I did, look what I did, Master, look what I did for you. Like a, a child who has done something and is eager to show their parents and they, and they come up excitedly to show them. And that's the idea really here of these two slaves. They're, they're eager to come up and to show their Master that they had in fact been productive during his absence. That they had gained something for his advantage. And notice here the master's response. He receives their work. And notice here that how he receives the, their work. And notice how he receives their work that they present to him. Each again according to his own ability. He received the one with the five talents according to what was expected for having five talents. He received the one with two talents according to what was expected for the two talents. But notice something, that's not the emphasis in the passage. That's not what he emphasizes. Look at it again. He emphasizes not what they produced, not even the amount they gained. He emphasizes their character. He emphasizes their character displayed in their work. And this is going to be a very important point. He does not say, great, look at all the advantage that you brought to me. Look how much wealthier I am now. Look how much more that I have to the increase of my power and my wealth. He doesn't say that. He says, you are a good and a faithful slave. You are a good and a faithful slave. Now, good can be used in the sense of useful, virtuous, moral integrity in a variety of ways. Here it is the virtuous character and the moral integrity of the slave. Yes, also of a usefulness that brought him advantage. But the focus here is of the virtue of the slave. And he is good and he is faithful. 
This speaks of his trustworthiness. He was consistent with the task that had been given to him. He was trustworthy. His character was honest and it had integrity. Paul uses that term in 1 Corinthians 4 too when he says it's required of a steward that they be found faithful. Same term is here, uh, same term is here, or that they be found trustworthy, trustworthy. The same thing is said of Jesus in Hebrews 3 too, that he was faithful. Their master gave them a task and they faithfully carried it out. And so he rewards their work. And again, notice it's based on their character. You were faithful over a few things, and I will put you in charge then over many things. And I want you to notice one thing here in this parable, and it's this. The generosity and the kindness of the master. He's ever so willing to bless them. He is ever so willing to show his gratitude toward them. He shows, in fact, an eagerness to honor these slaves. That he is almost as excited as they are as to honor them as they are to present to him their faithfulness. There is a, a sense of the benevolence of this master, the goodness of this master, the overwhelming generosity of this master. He could have simply said, thank you, and that would have been enough. He didn't even have to say that. But instead, he lavishes on them praise and honor. And you can almost feel this sort of gregarious joy and this bright smile on the face of this master as he responds to what they bring to him with excitement, with enthusiasm, with generosity, and with kindness. Then he says even more, enter into the joy of your master. The particular joy that belongs to the master and he invites them to share in it. Again, there's an overwhelming kindness, a good-naturedness towards the slaves, a loving warmth, an appreciation, an eagerness to share his bounty with them, though he was under no obligation to do so. Now let's draw again some lessons from this before we look at the last part, which is in many ways the main point of Jesus. But let's notice a few things here. First of all, remember, Jesus is painting a picture of the kingdom. And he's illustrating and he's instructing us on the nature of God and how we are then to relate to him based on the kingdom promises and truth. Notice first then this. God judges according to each one's ability. We mentioned that again, but notice here again. First we said that God gives... Wisely, he gives with perfect knowledge and wisdom. And here he's emphasizing the fact that then he judges on what he is given. It's a graded judgment in a sense. In other words, he expects no more from someone than what he gives them opportunity and ability to do. In other words, God doesn't have some cookie cutter quota for each person. He expects only that we are faithful in the circumstances that he places us in with the opportunities that he gives, with the abilities that he has entrusted to us. He doesn't judge on the amount of visible fruit of your labor necessarily. He judges according to your faithfulness to him in your labors. That's a very important point. And that goes to the second part to notice here. That God judges then based on the character of our service, not its outcome. The character of our service. Too often we judge by false human standards. And really, 
We could put this in one sense in the role of a pastor. That's the first way it, of course, affects those who are called to that particular role. Someone with a larger ministry. We could say that God is more pleased with them or they have in somehow more virtue to their ministry. And that may or may not be true. Or someone can flip that around and say, well, I have a small ministry, so that means I'm more faithful to God. I'm suffering for the gospel because I have five people in my church. That happens too, believe it or not. There's a certain pride about whether it's large and there can be a certain pride about whether it's small. But both of those are missing the point of the Lord here. Both of them are wrong. God doesn't judge on size or visible activity. He judges on spiritual faithfulness. Spiritual faithfulness. Now, I want to take that point, and I start with leaders, because the illustration I'm going to give deals particularly with teachers, but the principle is, of course, broader, and it spans out to all of us. It's in 1 Corinthians 3, and let me just mention this to you. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is addressing then, one, the the context, the attitude of factions. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and so on and so forth. And so he's addressing that kind of context there. A certain pride that went to some over what they were accomplished or how many followers that they had and so on. And so he's addressing here then the nature of each man's work. And he says here in verse uh, verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. In other words, if it doesn't start, if it doesn't flow out of, if it's not founded in Christ and all that God is for us in Christ, it doesn't matter what else goes on after that. It is to be destroyed. So every foundation must be laid in Christ. But then he says in verse 12, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw, each man's work work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through Fire. In other words, whatever it may look like on the outside, when it comes into the light of God's judgment and His holy and wise and perfect discerning judgment, each man's work will be shown for what it truly is. For some, they will be shown to have presented to God service from a good and a faithful heart. ...from a heart of love and desire to see the Master's kingdom increased. And that fruit then will remain. That is gold, that is the silver, that is the the, uh, precious stone sort of works. Others will be wood, hay and straw. So regardless of what that looked like on the outside... ...God will hold it up and evaluate it according to the light of His holy standard... ...according to the light of the sincerity of faith. And for many... Regardless of what it appeared on the outside, it will in fact all be burned away. All be blown away as chaff and shown to be worthless. It's really in a sense here, if we wanted to footnote that, kind of what he says over in chapter, verse 13 of chapter 11. I mean, excuse me, of Corinthians. It doesn't matter if you give your body to be burned, if you have faith that can move mountains, if you have all of this stuff, if you have knowledge that just impresses everyone, if it's done without love and the sincerity of love for Christ and for others, what does he say? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. God is concerned about the heart, 
God is concerned about the heart. And that's to what he points us to with these slaves. They offered to their master faithful service, good service. And it is on the basis of their character that God judges them. It's on the basis of this character that God judges them. So the question is, and particularly as we think about preparing for the Lord's table, how will the Lord evaluate you? What will the Lord's evaluation be of you? I, of course, ask myself that question, but I ask you, what will his evaluation be of you on that day? What will it be? Let's look at third, a third application of this, just briefly. And then we'll get to the end. Faithful servants, then, are motivated by God's glory. Faithful servants are also motivated by God's glory. And these, of course, all blend together. These servants were diligent. They were faithful with the opportunity to make an increase, get this, for their master. It was for their master. They were not the direct beneficiaries of this. Well, sometimes in the ancient world that happened with slaves, but that's not the point of what he's laying out here. They went out and they were presenting to their master all of what they had gained. Everything was to go to the benefit of their master, and that, in fact, was their joy. That, in fact, was their happiness. It was their motivation. It was their eagerness. That is then a reflection that we are to do all things to the glory of God. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.9, to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to Him. Service to Christ must be out of love to Christ. It is to bring Him honor. To bring Him glory. That is the evaluation. We remember the rebuke of Jesus to the Pharisees in Matthew 6. You do all of your deeds to do what? To be noticed by men. To receive praise from men. And he says, well, if that's what you want, you have your reward in full. Have praise to the hilt. Have praise till the day you die from men. But you will not receive praise from God. In fact, you will receive condemnation. But Jesus looks at the heart here. He points us always back to the heart. That it is done out of the sincerity of faith. And notice one other thing here. That God's reward is a lavish. It is a lavish expression of his grace. A lavish expression of of his grace. God is not stingy with his reward. He is not stingy with his goodness, but he is lavish with it. And I want to make this point quickly. I'm going to have to make it more quickly than I intended, but I want to remind us of one passage. And we've covered this recently with Pastor Reardon, but let me take you back there and remind you again. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm just going to mention this. We, of course, probably many of us have this as a memory verse, this passage. But he says, for by grace, you might say it in your head, for by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. And not only have we been saved by grace, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, verse 10, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the good works that God has designed are good works that He has given, good opportunities. It's the same idea here. Good opportunities, ways to serve Him that are all expressions of His grace, of His goodness, of His sovereignty, and of His sovereign plan. Now let me make a mention here then of just one thing. How do we fit this with Romans 3.12? You might be thinking, what does Romans 3.12 say? It says this, Paul does in his indictment of men. He said, there is no one who does good, not even one. No one who does good, 
not even one. Jesus said the same thing to us in Matthew. Remember the rich young ruler came to him in chapter 19 and he called him good teacher. And Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. God alone. He said it in Matthew 7 to them. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. They're saying theirs are at least kind acts. But it's coming from someone who is by nature and of their own evil. So we don't offer God good things in and of ourselves. There's no one outside of Christ who can offer God any good thing. There is a relative goodness between men, but there is no goodness that we have on our own before God. And this is important for us to understand. There is no one who can do good in this sense. There's no one who can do good outside of being in the status of justified by faith in Christ. No one can do good who is not covered by the righteousness of Christ. That was part of Paul's point. No foundation can be laid other than the one that was laid for us in Christ Jesus. However, true faith is an active faith. We know that from all of Scripture, James 2, the faith without works is dead. And so what he's emphasizing here is that when we act out of faith, that same faith that is a justifying faith that brings the justification, a, a trust in God a, that believes in the work of Christ, that is covered by his blood, covered by his life, out of that same faith that brings justification is a faith that acts in to the glory of God. It's a faith that rests in Christ, and God accepts that kind of work, that work of faith. And that work of faith, then, can be judged by him good. It can be judged by good. So if we are in Christ, we can actually do things that God can say is our good, our good. He can pronounce it good. And that's what he's emphasizing here. When we are obedient to his will, it is an act of grace because he brought us to salvation. It is an act of grace because he's the one who gave us the opportunity, good works that we should walk in them. And it's an act of grace because even when we're obedient, we've done nothing extra. Nothing extra. Luke 17.10, you remember that parable there, the slave who came in from the field. The master doesn't say, oh, you hardworking slave, you must have been hot today. Let me serve you and care for you. He says, no, that slave comes in from the field and he tells him to prepare his dinner and to finish the rest of his chores. And at the end of all of that, the slave doesn't go, wow, what a wonderful slave I am. My master must be pleased. He says, no, they say we are unworthy servants. We are unworthy slaves. We have done no more than what we ought to have done. We've done only what a slave does. We've not done anything extra. And that is the right attitude that we have. And though that is a right attitude, yet God's attitude here then shines out all the more in its abundance of goodness. Because he owes us nothing, everything he's given by grace, and yet he showers us with the abundance of reward. Of reward. And notice here that the reward to these slaves is not ease and rest. It's not a big bonus that lets them go retire on an island somewhere and never do anything else again with their lives. No, the, re- the honor that he gives them is what? He says it right there. Greater service, right? You were given a certain amount of my possessions that you were entrusted to use for my glory. Now I'm going to entrust you with more possessions to use for my glory. In other words, the reward for service is service. It is more opportunity to serve the king. 
And if you meditate on that for a bit, I would suggest that that will do a great deal in evaluating our perspective of Christian service. Our perspective of ministry to Christ. It is not merely duty. It is not drudgery. It is, by God's design, listen to this, the very instrument for our joy. Service. It's an instrument to our joy. It could even be said this, if you lack joy in your life, if you lack joy in your life, it could very well be related to a lack of service in your life. A lack of giving of yourself to the service of the kingdom of Christ. It could be because you're not serving in your local church. It could be because you're living life selfishly with what God has given. And so therefore he has withheld joy. Or it could be that if you say, but I am serving and I'm miserable, then you're serving out of wrong motives. Because service to the glory of God out of love for Christ brings joy to the life. It brings contentment. It brings a clear conscience. It brings happiness. As it was with these servants. That joy of service is a fruit of the Spirit. Motivated by love and gratitude, it is a means of joy. And not only that, but look at what he says. Enter into the joy of your master. He rewards us. This kind of joy is with his own joy. It's interesting to see how many explanations there are of this kind of joy here in the parable of a banquet or of a feast or those kind of things. But remember that Jesus is illustrating us here for us here the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is a joy. It's an end time joy with that fancy word. It's an eschatological joy. It's a joy that's looking to the end of the age and his return. It's that kind of joy. And he says it is his joy. It's his joy. It's the joy that we have of his presence. The joy that we have that comes out of fellowship with him. Jesus said to his disciples, actually, not far from when he gave this parable. This is all in the last days before his crucifixion. He says in verse 11 of John 15, just listen. These things I have spoken to you, speaking here of abiding in Christ, abiding in him by faith and obedience. Matter of fact, just before that, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, same thing that he's saying here, My joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Full. And here then, because this is, that's a joy that we can participate in part here. But he's looking beyond that and he's saying, but the joy that is to come at the end of that is an even greater joy. It's an overwhelming kind of joy. It's an imaginable kind of joy that God has designed for his faithful servants. It is an overflowing joy. It is a never-ending joy. It is a joy that will never be hindered by the presence of sin or unbelief. It is a joy that is yours and it is a joy that is overflowing. Listen to what Peter says along this line. He says, you have not seen him, but you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And if for some that is their experience here, we can only imagine the inexpressible joy of being in the presence of God and of Christ fully experiencing the reality of our sonship and our adoption and our redemption and our salvation that he has given to us by grace. By grace. This is overwhelming kind of joy. Overwhelming joy. It is God's own joy. 
It says that Christ suffered in Hebrews 12 for the joy set before him. And so we serve to enter into that same kind of joy. Now let's look lastly and, and briefly here in a few minutes before we come to the Lord's table. Notice lastly the indictment. And really we'll spend the less time on this in some sense, but, or we will, but this is really the main point of his parable. This is really what he's doing is while he's emphasizing the other as he's been doing in each parable, notice that each parable ends with judgment. Each parable ends with judgment. I know somebody has visited before or once said as we were going through Matthew here in this church, it seems like they're always talking about God's judgment. It's, well, Jesus talks a lot about it. We talk about it when Jesus talks about it. And here it is. If you've been here for a few weeks and you're like, there's so much judgment, it's because he says, just like in the days of Noah, there's going to be destruction. Jesus is going to come in verse 51. I'm going to cut him in pieces. The parables, I'm going to shut him out of the virgins. The one at the end of when he returns in 25, it's eternal death. And here he's the one who's saying he's going to be in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's all in just less than two chapters. The point is Jesus is making a point here. It's a warning. And Jesus' warnings have teeth. They have teeth. They're not light warnings. They are not superficial warnings. They are real warnings. And if Jesus gives us so many warnings, then that frequency itself, it tells us something. It tells us that there's a tendency in our nature to not listen and take it serious. And so he repeats it. And he says, take this serious because I'm warning you once again. And so he goes to indictment and judgment. And in contrast to the lavish grace and the overflowing goodness and joy in the previous scene, now we have this last slave here in verse 23. Or excuse me, let's see, where are we? Down in verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid... And I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Notice a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, how this slave viewed his master. Totally the opposite of the previous two slaves. They had one, a view of him that was of his beneficence, of his generosity, of his graciousness. And this one has a view of him that is hard, that is demanding, that is merciless, that is harsh, that is without compassion. He has a hard view of his master. He says, you reap benefits from others' labels and you demand from them the price without mercy. He has an opposite attitude and he has then an opposite response or an opposite perspective and therefore an opposite response. So because he had this hard view, what did he do? He went out and he hid it. He had no concern for the benefit of his master. And how did he respond? Well, again... Notice that the master here does not look particularly at the fact that he didn't make any gain. He looks and he notices again his character. You wicked and you lazy slave. Exactly the opposite of good and faithful. Wicked and lazy. Spiritually and morally corrupt. 
without virtue, hesitating to engage in something worthwhile, idle, lazy, shrinking from responsibility, slothful, someone who lacks resolution to act. Those are all ways to define that word lazy. In this case, it is this. It is the one who knows they have been entrusted with an opportunity to serve God, but are unwilling to overcome their desire for self-gratification and a bent toward a life of the least resistance and inertia. That's the idea of it. That's the idea. Just being lazy, flat-out lazy. He was unwilling to put in the effort, and more importantly and more to the issue, his motivation out of love for the Lord was not strong enough to overcome his natural tendencies towards inaction you see the first loved their lord and they acted out of their love this one had no love for his lord he had only fear an unreasonable fear only a harsh view of him an an uncaring and an unloving view to him and so he had no desire nothing motivated this slave then to honor the king and so the king exposes the emptiness of it in his rebuke, using the slave's own words against him. And he essentially says this, Your reasoning is an empty excuse. With even the smallest amount of effort on your part, you could have increased what I entrusted to you. Now this foolish excuse on at least two grounds. One being the master was under no obligation to give the slave anything. So that doesn't even make sense. He wouldn't have given it to you if he didn't expect you to do something with it. And it's foolish on another account because if you knew that the master reaped where he didn't sow, even using your own words about your own perception, you would have all the more should have been diligent out of that fear, not lazy. So your excuse falls flat on at least those two grounds. It in fact was just that. It was not a reason, it was an excuse. And so the master rightly bears, causes him to bear the penalty for it. And he takes it away, he gives it to the one who has the ten talents, and then he casts him out into the outer darkness. Again, Jesus is addressing here the professor of Christ, the one who professes faith in Christ, but their life does not demonstrate it. How does it not demonstrate it? Here, it is because it is a life that has no concern for service to Christ. That's the point. It is a life that has no concern for service to Christ. None at all. And this isn't just church attendance. Sometimes we feel like we've done our deed if we show up at church. The question isn't is, do you go to church? That's the base level. The question is, how are you serving? How are you using your life and your opportunities to benefit others to the glory of Christ? That's the question. And that's what he's addressing here. It is an active faith. It is not a passive faith. It is not an idle faith. It is a faith that serves Christ who is Lord. Righteousness is not completed until it transforms us to obedience of life. That's the completion of righteousness. And so that's what he's addressing here. How many professing Christians have a wrong view of God... On two fronts, really, to either say he's so gracious, it's really okay that I don't do anything. I mean, I'm saved, right? So God's, I mean, I probably should, but uh, I don't really have any deep motivation to, right? That's a cheap kind of grace. It's a superficial kind of grace. It's a grace that Jesus would warn about here that may not, in fact, be a saving grace. And it may, in fact, not be a saving faith. But then there's the other kind, too, that kind that just wants to give this excuse. Well, God is so hard, and I have so little to offer him anyway that I don't even really need to serve, because what would I do? It's an excuse. It's an excuse. 
The point is, is if you love Christ and you've experienced and you've tasted his kindness and his grace, you want to serve him regardless simply because you love him and you want to honor him with your life. And that's what he points out here. So to profess Christ but have no interest in serving him marks the danger of having a false profession of faith. Okay? To profess Christ but have no desire to serve him brings one into the danger of having a false profession of faith. And I want to just one more thing and then we're going to take the table. The Lord's table. Notice here, and this is very important. He does not condemn or indict the slave for what he does do. In other words, this isn't an openly immoral life. This isn't someone who's, who's just out there sinning all the time. That's not the picture. He indicts the slave for what he fails to do. There is sin of omission as well as there is sin of commission. The one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. James 4.17 is sin. Notice it is what the slave did not do. He did not act on what God entrusted to him. And so he is called worthless. Worthless. Can you imagine that? That is a pretty condemning statement. You are useless. You are no good to my purposes and you are no more use than to be thrown out and to be judged. Well at the heart of God's glory then At the heart of God's glory is the fact that though we've all sinned and failed, certainly in many areas, what we celebrate in this table is our joy at redemption. We celebrate the fact that he died and rose again, not only that we would be saved, but that we would be saved unto service and obedience and usefulness to our master. So as we take the table now and we get ready to examine our hearts and do it, examine yourself on two fronts. Two fronts, at least in response to this morning's uh, passage. The first front is this. First, to know if your faith is real. To know if it's real. Don't use your own feelings and ideas. You have to measure it against God's word and what he says real faith looks like. Not what you think. So examine your faith to see if it's real. Second, examine your life to see if you are serving Christ. And if you are, if you're serving him out of a right heart. Out of a right heart. And then... With that, let us come and worship the Lord together at his table. So as Ruth prays and the men hand out the elements, uh, we'll prepare our hearts.
lay hold of every opportunity as we should. But we are reminded that there is forgiveness with you when there is repentance of heart. And we rejoice in the forgiveness of our Savior. And we rejoice in the incredible display of your mercy and grace that from such weak and stumbling vessels, you accept the meager gifts and the meager service that we offer to you. And we pray that you would energize us to offer you even more, that our lives would be a living and a holy sacrifice. And so if there is in any of our hearts indolence and laziness and unbelief, would you help us to turn from it and serve you more faithfully and obediently? And for those of you or of us who may be like that wicked and lazy slave who has an outward form but no inner motivation of love for the Savior, that you would change that this day and they would bow their knee and commit themselves to you as Lord and trust only in your grace and live a life of grateful service to you, the King of Kings. And may we, as of your body, anticipate the joy, the overwhelming joy that is ours with you when we stand in your presence, holy and blameless with great joy. And it is the name of the one who has purchased that for us, the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.